0: And now for something completely different. fast Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors.
1: And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, Tuesday already as we... Uh, Rolling through this week already. Just uh, Here we go. Get ready to wrap up the month, too, already. I told you when we came back from the Christmas break that we welcomed you into January. And we said, you know what? You need to start shopping for Christmas. It'll be before you know <it>.
0: Don't blink.
1: <laughs> Don't blink. It's already gone. So, yeah, you know, spring break's coming up. Yeah. This is a big year for the Roberts household, by the way. Oh? Big year for the Roberts household. Right. We got spring break coming up then we have may coming and then i've got two kids out of the house so i'll be down to one kid left
0: off the payroll
1: yep yeah off the payroll off the college yeah i don't pay for their college that's on them so <laughs> i keep encouraging them to go the military route but they're not listening to me but <laughs> anyway uh yeah so yeah big big changes this year so it's going to start to really quiet down around the roberts household mm-hmm. so yeah very excited about this because uh You know, I love my kids. They are the light of my life. They're teenagers, and they're driving me crazy. (laughs) So, you know, I used to watch all these videos about how people, you know, talked about their teenagers. Yeah. I get it. I I get it. They
0: weren't uh, exaggerating. Was
1: was Adam that way?
0: Oh, yeah. He was? Oh, I've got stories.
1: (laughs) We should swap stories. We should (laughs) swap All right. Hey, that's not what you want to hear about. You want to hear about what happened yesterday. So yesterday morning, of course, uh, we started off the day in a pretty negative red territory. And in fact, most of the day was pretty negative Uh, during the first part of the day as we were really kind of getting into uh, the the market itself, really started selling off strongly. We were down about 4% on the NASDAQ in particular as we really started uh, seeing a lot of real bleed in the markets altogether and in fact you know as we got further into to the morning the market sell-off just kind of continued on and got more and more pressure And we've been talking about for the last few days hey we were due for a bounce we had all this options expiration on friday Uh, we were expecting a bounce yesterday morning certainly didn't happen and got a lot more selling pressure now we saw about you know, a, a tremendous amount of volume yesterday of stocks being dumped, particularly at the open. And so, but what happened was, is yesterday, of course, we had this uh, complete rebound and reversal in the markets yesterday. So, again, what does that mean? That's kind of the big question at this point is, you know, how do we get from, you know, yesterday and now this morning, futures are starting to point back lower once again. Uh, Dow's down about 261 points here at the open this morning. Uh, implied, you know, S&P and Dow, uh, future um, Nasdaq are going to be down well over one percent again this morning. But again, you know, the good news is we were down four yesterday, recovered all of that. So uh, we've got you know four percent of downside to go before we get back to yesterday's low. So you know, there's there's a little bit of breathing room here, I should say, for the correction. And it doesn't look like the selling pressure's done yet. Now, this is all in advance of. Now, tomorrow, importantly, is the Fed meeting. Now, this is going to be where we find out just how aggressive and just how committed, I should say, the Fed is to potentially hiking rates and, uh, and, and really working on and, you know this kind of inflation binge that they've been worried about Of course, and this was all driven by this massive flood of monetary liquidity, that $5 trillion worth of checks to households and extended unemployment benefits, all that, that, you know, certainly led to this excess capital that everybody had to spend and they went out and they spent it. And of course, the economy was shut down. So this led to this inflation. Now, the the problem is for the Fed is they've got a real challenge here. They have to understand that the inflationary surge we're seeing in the economy is artificial and it's only temporary because now that the liquidity is already coming out, that's being reduced, all those child tax credits are gone, all the extended unemployment benefits are gone, the checks to households have long been spent. So that demand is already already starting to show signs of weakening, in fact- If you take a look at markets, PMI, manufacturing and services index, they have clearly peaked and rolled over here. Not surprising. That's, you know, nothing that we're starting to see clear evidence, yield curve, flattening, et cetera, that we're starting to see economic growth slow down. That's deflationary in nature. And so a lot of this surge that we saw in the markets was created by this. Artificial surge of liquidity, this massive push of, of M2 money supply just you know ramping up to, 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 to high degrees. And, of course, that hit the economy at the time we were shut down, so that led to this big price surge. Now this is all starting to reverse. Now that liquidity is coming out and supply is coming back online, so you're going to get deflationary pressures. That's just the way the economy works. So the challenge for the Fed, though, is they've kind of committed themselves – At this point to battle this inflationary surge and they're talking about aggressively hiking rates and and balancing their balance uh, reducing the size of their balance sheet and this is really what the markets is looking at you know are they going to be committed to that and and i kind of wrote this in a tweet this morning i said the market's calling the feds bluff here (laughs) so the fed's been talking very aggressively about trying to get you know this inflation under control but the market's kind of front-running what the Fed is doing here. And this is this will create deflationary pressures all on their own because as people see their asset values declining, they start saying, you oh, know what, I'm not going to go spend that money I was going to spend because, man, I don't know what's going on with the markets right now. So you kind of get this, this built-in effect. Maybe that's what the Fed wanted. Maybe this whole thing by the Fed was simply just to talk the markets down. We'll see. We'll see what they say tomorrow. If the Fed comes out tomorrow and says, "Well, you know, we're kind of watching things and uh inflation starting to moderate here and and you know, we're going to continue to kind of watch here for another month or two, you know, the market's likely going to scream higher I- at that point. Um the market will have, will understand that the Fed has now been caught. If the Fed comes out tomorrow and says, you know, we're Stick to our plans, Stick into our guns, we're going to be hiking rates and, and tapering our balance sheet, probably going to have more sell-off in the markets. And that's really what the market's trying to front-run right now is really trying to get ahead of a more aggressive uh, a Federal Reserve. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, the issue, though, and again, you know, when we take a look at yesterday, the sell-off that we had so we were down four percent kind of on the nasdaq at the kind of at the nadir of the the markets yesterday and then all of a sudden had this massive rebound and the markets wound up almost you know a point higher so just a complete just you know we had a 1400 point swing in the Dow yesterday the Dow was down a thousand points yesterday we haven't seen that since March of 2020 and we haven't seen days where we were down a thousand points and swing back to positive but only on five occasions previously two of those occurred during the dot-com bubble two of them occurred in the midst of the financial crisis and the fifth one was during the Asian contagion in 1997 Talk more about this we we'll come back from the break. I'm your host, Science Roberts, realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't go away.
0: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the Internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. What will the Fed's actions this week mean for your money next week? Join Lance Roberts with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for a special edition of Candid Coffee this Saturday, January 29th at 8 a.m. We'll address market conditions post-Fed meeting. Will it be slow or go for Wall Street? And how will the Fed's stance affect your investments? Register now for our special edition post-Fed Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com Candid Coffee with Ratliff, Rosso and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com The Real Investment Show
1: So I want to show you something here as we kind of talk about this, you know, and this is important to understand here because there's a lot of, you know, as we're talking about the Fed and we're talking about the, you know, their view about inflation and really this kind of permeates into the rest of the markets as well. Uh, There's a lot of people right now chasing the commodity trade. And you know, it's like, oh, uh, you know, inflation's going up, so I need to buy, you know, all these commodities, these type of things. And nothing wrong with that, right? It's it's kind of that belief that if you're gonna have surging inflation, and again, as soon as you, you know, we, we do have a very strong rate of inflation currently. And if you go back to the seventies, that and that's you know, first of all, most people haven't been alive <laughs> that are investing in the markets, um, you know, by the seventies, but you know, when i was growing up i remember you know the 70s and you know the the gas lines and all this um back in the day back then you had this meter on the side of your house that metered your electricity right it, it actually just stuck to the house and it metered how much electricity you use and so i remember though i mean my dad was just a, you know You know, worked at a chemical plant and, you know, worked in a warehouse, worked in a manufacturing plant. And, you know, my mom was, you know, teaching school. And so money was tight and and inflation was surging, you know, sharply back then and costs were going up. And about once a month, my dad knew about the time that the meter man would come around and meter the house. And he'd go outside and you could unscrew. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you could unscrew the meter, and then we would all be sitting in the house, and I would have to hold the flashlight for him, and then he'd roll the meter back (laughs) on the electricity to keep our bill down, right? Can't do that anymore. Pretty sure
0: the statute of limitations (laughs) has run out on that story.
1: (laughs) Well, they can go get him. He passed away. (laughs) So I can tell that story now, but yeah. Yeah. Go get him. I'll <laughs> Good show you. Luck. Where, I'll show you his new address. <laughs> but yeah, but that, but I mean, look, I mean, people were doing everything they could back then to try to curtail costs, and and again, it was you know, gas lines, and all this. That was inflation, and that, and that was sticky inflation because it was persistent and it and it stayed right. I mean, this is, you know, it it was it was a challenge. Um, currently. We have a lot of people throwing back to those days, right? Going, oh, this is like the '70s, and if inflation's going up, we need to buy hard assets and commodities and all these type of things. Okay, then and there's a difference. And I'm not saying that. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that inflation can't be persistent for a while longer, but there is a difference. Back in the '70s, you had very strong rates of economic growth. We were growing at six, seven, eight percent annualized. Um, at the time. Interest rates were coming up. You had a very strong manufacturing-based society, which has a very large economic throughput, about $5 for every dollar input into it, versus today where we've moved into a financialization economy where deflationary pressures are persistent, much more so than inflationary pressures. I wanted to show you this chart. So, we wrote about this last year, so I have a chart up. If you are watching our live stream, you can see it now. If, if you're driving, don't try to watch <laughs> the live stream. I'm going to explain it to you. It's fine. Um, but this, I, I just took M2 money supply, and I went back to 2000, and I said, you know, what's the what's kind of the correlation between the increase or decrease in the supply of money in the economy versus inflation. And there's about a nine-month, and this chart I published back in early 2021, okay? And it was saying, look, this is about March of 2021. I said, in about nine months, inflation is going to show up because M2 has about a nine-month lead over inflation. Why is that? Well, if I just sock a whole bunch of money into the economy today, you know, I've got to get it to you. You've got to go spend it in the economy. And it takes time to work its way through. It takes about nine months to work its way through the system. And the reason I wanted to show you this, this was in our article that we wrote yesterday, and which was the Fed won't be able to hike rates nearly as much as they expect. And this chart was kind of the key measure behind that because – I updated the chart now, nine months later, and what you see is now that surge in M2 money supply, inflation has caught up to it, just as, as you would have expected it would. About nine months later, voila, we have inflation because we slammed all this liquidity into the markets. Now, importantly, M2 is dropping drastically now, which if the correlation holds true, and theoretically it should, inflation is going to start to drop over the next few months as that liquidity continues to come out of the system. Now, on top of this, you've now got the Fed talking about hiking rates and tightening money supply, which is going to pull more liquidity out of the system. The federal government, the current administration, can't get bills passed, so there doesn't seem to be at the moment any more Funding bills in terms of Build Back Better or whatever, they seem to be just tripping all over themselves in the administration now trying to get anything done. So it doesn't seem to be any more monetary policy, or I should say fiscal policy, I apologize, coming our way anytime soon. So there, there seems to be more drag on liquidity at the moment than there is impulse. And so the the reason I'm bringing this up is because, again, I think while the Fed is talking a tough game about hiking rates and doing these type of things, if you look back to 1982, right, so now, so here we are, late 70s, right, surging inflation, Paul Volcker comes in and says, hey, you know, he's going to team up with Ronald Reagan here and they're going to break the back of this inflation and surging interest rates. Now, remember, interest rates were 14, 15 percent back in the late 70s. And people having to deal with borrowing costs but again economic growth was exce- exceptionally strong i mean eight nine percent growth rates in the very late 70s i mean the economy was booming that's why interest rates were up inflation was up the economy was growing very strongly but paul woker came in and said we need to stop this and that was really the initiation of the active fed and the, and the federal reserve started hiking rates and started bringing down that rate of inflation. And ever since then, ever since the Fed's become active, every time the Fed starts a rate hiking campaign, you either get a pretty severe bear market, some type of financial crisis, or some other type of monetarily related event, savings and loan crisis, Pennsylvania, um, you know, Orange County, Asian contagion, long-term capital management, dot-com crisis, financial crisis, you name it. Um, And here's the interesting part about all of this is that every time the Fed has hiked rates, the peak of that interest rate hike has always been lower than the peak where they previously hiked rates and created a problem. So, for instance, in 1991, when they were hiking rates, it caused the 91 recession, And Fed funds rates were running, you know, roughly around, you know, 5%. Ever since then, that's been going lower and lower and lower during that time frame. So, you know, again, this is is one of those kind of interesting bylines is that the Fed likely has much less room to operate than what they currently think. And again, we go back to, you know, really kind of taking a look at You know, Treasury yields and what happens in the bond market and bond markets really kind of that risk off indicator is that as the Fed starts hiking rates, you would expect. And I get this question all the time. Lance, why do you want to buy bonds here? Because the Fed's hiking rates. Yes, they're hiking rates on the short end of the curve. So they're bringing up very short term borrowing costs. But the long term borrowing costs, 10 year, 20 year, 30 year bonds, those are more tied to economic growth so as economic so as you start hiking interest rates on the short end, that's going to start slowing economic growth, and that's going to bring yields down on the longer end. And in fact, every time the Fed starts into their quantitative easing programs, that's exactly what happens and here and and so, as they end these programs, you know rates rise during the midst of these programs, which is exactly what's happened because the fed's juicing the the economy with all this liquidity, which is driving asset prices up. And so there's a risk on attitude. So people sell bonds to buy stocks. But when that policy ends, stocks tend to perform worse and money flows in the other direction. 2018 is a good example of this. In 2018, the Fed's hiking rates and tapering their balance sheet. And they say, hey, we're nowhere near the neutral rate. And yields are already falling, and yields plunged between October and December <laughs> until the Fed, you know, reversed course very quickly and said, you know what, hey, just teasing about those rate hikes. Yeah, we're, we're right there at the neutral rate. <laughs> of course, six months later, they're actually cutting rates back to zero and starting to bail out banks and hedge funds in September. And then come March of the next year, injecting $120 billion a month in QE again. Will this time be different? Maybe. But I think it's worth paying attention to what they say tomorrow because that will be the, really the key indicator for what happens in the markets between now and until they start doing QE again. Be right back after the break.
0: Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. What will the Fed's actions this week mean for your money next week? Join Lance Roberts with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for a special edition of Candid Coffee this Saturday, January 29th at 8 a.m. We'll address market conditions post-Fed meeting. Will it be slow or go for Wall Street? And how will the Fed's stance affect your investments? Register now for our special edition post-Fed Candid Coffee at realinvest. Investment dot com. Candid coffee with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Real Investment Advice.com. You're listening to the Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to the show this morning. You know one of the uh, interesting things about the economy right now, and I've written about this numerous times in the past. You know this, and 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 most people have disagreed with me, and that's okay. But you know when you take a look at the economy, and you take a look at how we report employment is a good example, right? So, according to the Fed, we're nearly at full employment. And we've got 4.2, 4.5% unemployment rate. Now, what does that mean? That means that if you take it theoretically, right, what that means is, is that you've got over 95% of the population working. So if you're of working age, you should be working. And according to the employment statistics, Almost 95% of the, you know, more than 95% of the available population is working. You're never going to have 100% employment. There's always a group of people that will be unemployed for a variety of reasons, right? They just got laid off. They're, you know, they uh, going out to, to start a business, whatever they're doing, right? But you're always going to have a portion of the, and you've got those that just don't want to work, right? So there's, there's always that group of people. So you're never going to have 100 percent but when you're you know when you're hitting 95 percent that's that's pretty much full employment historically speaking the problem though has been really since 2000 is we take a look at the participation rate so the labor force participation rate says okay out of all the people that should be working how many actually are participating in the labor force now that number is going to be lower than 100% of people above the age of, say, 16, right? So once you're 16, you can go to work. So if everybody worked and the entire population was over the age of 16, then you'd have a 100% labor force participation. Now, look, you're going to have husbands and wives, um, single-income households. So the spouse is not working, the other spouse is. So you've got people that are not working in the labor force for a variety of other reasons, disabilities, whatever. So you're never going to have 100% labor force participation rate. But in 2000, arguably, we had a very good participation rate in the economy of almost 67%. Since 2000, that labor force participation rate has been dropping as we've gone from one kind of crisis to the next. So in 2000, economy's booming, dot-com, innovation, internet, you know, the whole nine yards, right? And then we have the dot-com crisis and the labor force participation rate falls off as companies go bankrupt, they go out of business, people lose their jobs. It rebounded a bit heading into the financial crisis. Got up to about Little over 66% participation after falling below that level. And then uh, during the financial crisis, the labor force participation rate fell from that 66% level down to 62 very sharp decline. The last time we were at a 62% participation rate was really kind of back in the 1980s. But the difference then is a participation rate was not falling, it was rising. So after the financial crisis and then really at about, you know, 2015, 2016, the economy starts to kind of do a little bit better. Kind of got past all the scars of the financial crisis and the labor force participation rate started to kind of pick back up. We got up to about 63.5% participation rate. Not a great recovery, uh, considering... You know, we spent $43 trillion of fiscal and monetary policy between Fed bailouts and government stimulus, et cetera. We were only able to marginally improve that labor force participation rate. And then, of course, when we shut down the economy, that participation rate plummeted to 61%. Now it's recovered here a little bit. We're about to six, we're back up to about 62%. Now, 62% is lower than where we were following the financial crisis. So he, now what people immediately assume is, is, like, well, that's just all the retirees, right? So we had all these baby boomers. They're coming off the rolls now. They're all retiring. Um, that doesn't really fit the scenario. Yes. Baby boomers are retiring, but you've got Gen X and millennials coming up into the labor force. And, that 24, and so if you're over the age of, say, 24, 25, and you're under the age of 55, you should be working. And the problem is, is that the labor force participation rate of that 25 to 55 category is also dropping and, in fact, the labor force participation rate for men has been declining ever since 1950. And, and so the, there's more to this. Here is my point. There's more to this story than just baby boomers are retiring. That's too simple of an explanation. And the other problem that we have with the employment statistics, et cetera, all really relate back to one other, you know, primary problem is how we count things. So when the Federal Reserve is talking about, hey, we're near full employment, really, how do you explain full employment when you've got 13 million people missing out of the labor force since 2000, you've got 10 million people that are just absent from the labor force since 2009. Where are they? These are the uncounted millions. They're out there. They're doing stuff, right? But if you're working three part-time jobs, you're working 80 hours a week. You're not considered employed, though. So this is how we adjust for things. You know, one of the other adjustments we make for employment is the birth death analysis, which is this guess at what's happening with small businesses. And the, and the Federal Reserve said, and sorry, the Bureau of Economic Analysis says, well, people are leaving the labor force, yes, and they're starting their own businesses. And so we just assume that every month, that we have X number of businesses getting started, and they all hire people. Well, we just went through the statistics recently here that shows that that's absolutely not the case. In fact, the number of small businesses in the country hasn't changed in like 30 years. It's been flatline. Businesses go into business, they go out of business, and they're replaced by new businesses, right? I mean, it's 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 just a turnover. So that doesn't really explain it. But what it does explain a lot of this is is that there's more to this story about employment than what the economic analysis tells us or the economic story tells us. It tells us that there's a whole chunk of the population that is working multiple part-time jobs. They're outside the labor force for a variety of reasons. They're not working. They're figuring, you know, we, we've, we've talked about this numerous times on the show is that, you know, if you know how to work the system, there's enough monetary support between a variety of government programs, welfare, et cetera, that you can cobble together enough income to live on. Now you're not you're not you're not you know you're not driving a Maserati, but you can you can make it work if you're willing to live that you know kind of that meager lifestyle you can do it, and you can not work. And we're seeing more and more of this really start to reflect in some of these economic numbers. And and if we and you've got again you've got to kind of dig down behind the story you know we see these headlines of these employment reports you've got to start asking yourself the question well why is that that way because it has an impact and this is where we go back to talking about the deflationary pressures in the economy you know the reason that everybody wanted to you know and again look if you're going to give people free money there's nobody's going to turn down free money right but why is there such a demand for socialism because this idea of socialism is more free stuff. I want more free stuff. You know, pay for my college. Pay for my, you know, give me money to spend. You know, give me more unemployment benefits. Give me more child tax credits, those type of things. Give me free money. But the problem with it is that that's not productive, a productive use of money, and it leads to slower economic growth. So the whole point of this story is that this is one of the big drivers of deflation in the economy as opposed to inflation. And this is why, if you take a look at socialistic countries, they always have a problem with inflation because, again, if you give people free money, that's fine. They're going to go spend it, but they don't produce anything. And if you don't produce anything, you don't have economic output, which means your demand outstrips your supply. You have inflation. But the bigger story behind this whole thing, when we're talking about inflation, deflation, Fed policy, all this type of stuff, pay attention to what's actually going on with the labor force participation rate. It's telling you a lot more about the state of the economy than the simple excuse of, well, it's just baby boomers retiring. Because that doesn't account for the big decline in labor force participation in the 25 to 54 bracket. Be right back after the break.
0: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the Internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. What will the Fed's actions this week mean for your money next week? Join Lance Roberts with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for a special edition of Candid Coffee this Saturday, January 29th at 8 a.m. We'll address market conditions post-Fed meeting. Will it be slow or go for Wall Street? And how will the Fed's stance affect your investments? Register now for our special edition post-Fed Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. and
1: welcome back to the show this morning i'm real sance roberts okay enough about inflation deflation this morning uh you get the idea uh the real risk to to the fed uh, and again as they have this meeting tomorrow actually they're having their meeting today and tomorrow we'll we'll get their statement tomorrow which is going to be die sliced and and analyzed nine ways to sunday and of course their fomc statement after they you know press conference after where he takes Q&A. Questions, of course, Everybody, everybody's going to be focusing on monetary policy. Are you tightening it or not? Are you cutting the balance sheet or not? What's your view on inflation? That's it. I mean, everything else is not even going to be on the radar. It's all going to be about the inflation. So we'll see. It's all a guesswork till now then. Um, you know, the market's trying to call the Fed's bluff at this point. We'll see if um, who wins, if – the market's putting enough pressure on the Fed that the Fed backs off. And we'll know. You know, it's interesting. I was driving in this morning and I heard a clip from Psaki, who is uh, the White House press maven. <laughs> and she said that unlike his predecessor, the president is not focused on the stock market. So, you know, it's an interesting statement because. The stock market ever since really President Obama has become a measuring stick of how well the president's policies are doing. And every time the market's doing well, the president comes out and says, well, you know, you can tell by the stock market how good my policies are working in the economy, et cetera, so forth and so on. And and Trump went right on with that same type of analysis, tying a lot of performance of his policy back to the stock market really the two don't have a whole lot to do with each other in a lot of cases but you know it's it's an easy measuring stick well it's obviously not working right now for the biden administration so it's not surprising for them to try to distance themselves from it but the real the real issue of course is that the fed is a political animal and jerome powell almost lost his job in 2018 Under the Trump administration, there was all kinds of articles about how Trump's going to fire Jerome Powell because of the stock market crash of 20 percent, so forth and so on. And it wasn't long before the Fed reversed policy. And And this is not just Jerome Powell. This was under Yellen. It was under Bernanke as well. And, of course, those two presided under the Obama administration. But, you know, policy has a lot to do. And politics has a lot to do and a lot of effect on Fed decision-making. The Fed is not an independent animal by any stretch of the imagination. You can't be independent when you're owned by the major banks. And you can't be independent when your job is dependent upon nomination by Congress and politics. So, you know, this idea that the Fed's going to be totally independent tomorrow and they're just going to be solely focused on inflation is a little bit disingenuous because politics are going to be playing a role in this. Well, and, and again, so we'll see, and, and again, you know, what's pressuring, you know, if you take a look at the approval ratings for President Biden right now, there is a direct inverse correlation between his approval ratings and the rise in inflation. So, you know, there is a lot of pressure on the Fed to fix the inflation problem. So that's what we're going to be watching for tomorrow. Everybody's going to be watching for that tomorrow. So a flying car has now gotten a green light to take flight in Slovakia. Car is capable of flying two people at 100 mile per hour speeds and then go drive down the freeway. I just have a question for you. I am sure when the Wright brothers first invented the airplane that there weren't a whole line of people standing out there going, "Yeah, I want one too." (laughs) I think flying cars are a really cool idea. I don't think I will probably ever own one in my lifetime because you know it's one thing to crash in your car when you're on the freeway; it's another one to crash from a few thousand feet. (laughs) So, (laughs) and I just have a suspicion. That uh, they don't glide very well. That's, that's the, uh, (laughs) that's the thing. But look, it's the whole, and and then there's going to be the whole FFA, FAA licensing thing. And, you know, it's just, and then you got drones. I mean, pretty much, you know, Houston traffic is going to all move up. Right. And so that means freeways are going to be open. (laughs) So I'll just keep driving my car. I think I'll just be just fine driving.
0: I can't wait for three-dimensional traffic reports.
1: Oh, don't worry. That's coming. (laughs) In your your VR headset. Yes. Did you actually see what the uh, inventor of the Sony PlayStation said yesterday? I did not. So the the inventor of the Sony, I I am summarizing uh, what he said because it was obviously in Japanese. And so my translation simply turns out to be is like, that's the most stupid idea I've ever heard of. People don't want to. People don't want to sit around with VR headsets on, <laughs> and be in this virtual world. That's his view. Of course, he's the inventor of one of the most popular gaming stations, you know, on the planet. Don't know if he's right or wrong. He, he's old. He's an older guy. So you know, He's, okay, a, he's, boomer. A, he, he's a boomer. Yeah. yeah. So he doesn't get it, right? <laughs> He got he got it with the the Sony PlayStation, right? Yeah. But he doesn't get it now with the whole VR thing. But you know, Facebook's changed their name to Meta and you know, they are they are pursuing the metaverse, which is this world that you will be able to live in. I I strongly advise you if you have any interest in the metaverse is to go watch Ready Player 1. Um and not from the movie standpoint, it's look at from the economic socioeconomic commentary that is underlaid behind that there's actually a story about the ills of creating a world where everybody lives in an imaginary one where you can be whatever you want to be Um, it's not a great it's not a great outcome it's not a great world to be in Um, but You know, this again, you know, this comes back down to we're talking about a few minutes ago about employment and work and productivity, building things. You know, if everybody's spending all their time in the metaverse, it's hard to be productive. You can't really build a building in the metaverse, which really kind of comes down to this whole idea of NFT real estate, where you own a piece of real estate in a virtual world. Right, and people are paying exorbitantly high prices for a piece of real estate in this metaverse that you can create an infinite amount of. You know, there's a there's a old saying about with real estate. The reason you should always buy real estate is that you know God's not making any more of it. At least on planet Earth. So there's only so much real estate. There's a finite limit to the amount of real estate available to buy on the planet Earth. In the metaverse, there is no limit. And if there's no limit to something, there is no creation of demand. If you create something and I I think you're charging too much for it, I'll just go build my own, right? And there will be all kinds of tools and developments for you to build your own metaverses. This will become the next thing. Um, And it's going to be interesting to see how this all works out down the road. But, you know, this is you know it's kind of a very interesting transition we're very early into it and it's and it's interesting to watch lots of people are coming up with you know ideas about how this virtual world will be very useful and it's true um you can run you know for instance you could run highly dangerous experiments in a in this virtual world and at no risk right so i can i can do chemical compounds, I can do a variety of things um, in this virtual world. I could train, uh, for instance, I could train people to be um, a bomb disposal unit as an example. I could train people to d- to diffuse and dispose of bombs um, in a virtual world to where if they mess up, right? <laughs> there's no consequence. But I can teach them the tools and the techniques that they need to know. In the world, so there's definite uses. I don't want to. I don't want people to think it's like I'm just saying the metaverse is stupid. I'm not saying that at all. There's definitely uses for that. But in in terms of, you know, people moving to the point where I'm buying, you know, virtual real estate and it's going to be an, an investable asset like real real estate, is incorrect because there is no limit to what I can create in a virtual world. Um, You know, so it's interesting to watch, though, but, you know, it'll be it'll be something that, you know, and Facebook's making a big bet on this and Microsoft is, too. And Microsoft is working, you know, this this idea, this metaverse is something that is is going to dominate a lot of the digital platforms as we start to go forward. And the question is going to be viability of it outside of the entertainment space. And do you start getting in, you know, if it starts to make a migration into, again, um, you could perform, you could teach doctors how to do, perform surgeries in this virtual world without risking, you know, life, right? So there's a, there's a huge amount of opportunity there. And the question, of course, is, as with everything, is going to be who can actually take advantage of it and create a useful product out of it outside of just the entertainment. So we'll see. I think it'll be fun to watch still not flying a car it's not gonna happen those things tend to end at the first crash right
0: (laughs) abruptly it
1: it was a great idea until it crashed but look there's a lot of them they just came out with the jetsons one right uh, so lots of flying cars on their way so hey that's your thing let me know all right, wrap the show for today. Be back here tomorrow for the next edition of The Real Investment Show. Get by our website. New articles posted out today on the website as well. Um, and, again, we'll see what happens with the Fed tomorrow. We'll keep you all up to date on markets, money, and more right here at realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow.
0: It's a rich man's world.